Re is a podcast brought to you by New Heights Church, a church located in Mission, B.C., focused on being church with mission in mind. We are your hosts, Jessica Stefik and Greg Elford. And this is the Read Podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. Today, the Re Podcast is a reaction to our first look at the subject of reassembling. After listening to L. Pike's perspectives on the state of the church in Canada and having two weeks of a local church engagement, we are placing the mic in front of people that we see consistently and know within the community. This episode has three segments that give us three handles to take our reflections deeper. A story, an interview, and some reactions from my co-host Jessica Stefik on the themes of reassembling. The re-podcast exists to explore how we mature in our understanding of things, which topics need more room for nuance, and how to walk together through the process of change. We start with a story that parallels the natural maturing from initial belief construction through painful deconstruction to a nuanced reconstruction. Take warning, this is not something that you might want your children to overhear, and maybe not for the reason you'd initially think. Aaron Lowe is a friend, a Jesus follower, and a storyteller. He brings humor and candor in all three. This is his Santa story. So Aaron, your Santa Claus story, uh, when did you get your story straight? I was 12. I remember very clearly. Okay. And uh, can you lay out a little bit what happened? It's November. I mean, grade seven, Christmas is coming up. Some of my friends told me that Santa Claus wasn't real. And of course, being the logical, reasonable person I am, I did not believe them at all. Okay, so uh, your your classmates are 12 and have figured out that the story isn't exactly as it may seem. Um, so what? Did, how did you react to this? Like, what? these kids are ruining your Christmas dream. What did you say? Like any reasonable person, I said, I went about convincing them that Santa Claus was in fact real and that their parents were the liars. <laughs> <laughs> so you were able to convince these 12-year-olds that they uh, they had it right originally and that there was like an inception happening or something something like that i i don't remember the specific arguments that i used but i figure it was just pure passion at that point that was convincing them that's hilarious and so these kids now are all that did this raise some issues of its own like we've got a bunch of 12 year olds running around reconvinced that this is a real thing what how did your teacher react to this so my teacher did find out pretty quickly in the whole process and uh rather than be the person who uh, like had to t let us all down, he uh, phoned my mom and told her that she had to be the one to break the news. Okay, so I'm picturing like young Aaron Lowe heading home to see his mom. Like, is this kitchen table talk? Or like, how did, how did, this, how did the conversation go down? So my mom, no pre preamble, straight shooter. She just sat me down on the chair, didn't tell me what it was about and said, Santa isn't real. Just boom, just ruined your dreams. It was like I had been shot <laughs> at point. I, uh, I, I, my mouth was probably agape. I, I 
started I definitely was crying. I definitely remember crying. And my mom confirms <laughs> that I cried. So what, like how did you feel in that moment? Your your mother has been telling you one story all this time and you believed it enough to risk uh, so social kind of tension with the other kids on the on the playground to convince them even. And now she tells you a whole new story. What how did how did the the penny drop for you there? Utter betrayal. That was the only word I could think of. Like, why would she lie to me about that? Why? Why would she, like, convince me of that? And then, and then embarrassment as well, because I'm, like, convincing my friends of something that isn't real. So what happened the next day? Like, when you went back to school, did, did you set the record straight that it was all just a gag? Or how did that happen? Oh, I... I was too embarrassed to talk to my friend. I just let their parents do that job, <laughs> reconvince them that Santa isn't real. How did it how did it go from there with mom? Well, at the end I I just asked her, "What? The Easter bunny isn't real either?" Our second segment narrows down on one person's reflection on how reassembling church has been a crucial faith-saving experience. We are thrilled to welcome our dear friend, Cecily Carrillo. Welcome, Cecily. To start things off, um, can you give us a bit of a bio of who you are, where you're from, and maybe some distinctives that would help people picture the perspective that you're bringing to the table today? Hi, guys. It's super fun to be here. Um, yep, my name is Cecily. I am actually an American from San Diego, California, and I recently moved up to Canada in 2019 to study marriage and family therapy. So I'm in the process of getting my master's at a local seminary here. And yeah, I'm loving life in Canada and love being part of the whole greater Vancouver area. Have you tried poutine? I actually haven't. Oh my, we need to change that. <laughs> yeah, we are so glad you're joining us and we would love to just dive right in because we know you've got lots of good things to say. So to start with, can you tell us what would happen on a typical Sunday morning at the Carrillo household? That's that's how you say it, right? Carrillo? You know, Greg, you can say it <laughs> however you want, but actually, if you want to sound legit, you'd say Carrillo. Carrillo? <laughs> you got to roll the R. You got to roll the R and the L's sound like a Y. All right. So what went down at the Carrillo? <laughs> household when you were a, a little Cecily yeah yeah I grew up in a Christian family and my so my first childhood experience with church um, I, I can actually really resonate with some of the things Elle was saying in regards to having empathy for some older folks who were part of a congregation or a revival kind of movement that felt amazing back in the day um, leading to this impulse to perpetuate that same kind of Christian culture and that was my parents. So they both had grown up in a pretty rigid religious kind of system and both became followers of Jesus later in their late teens. And so for them to go to this um, evangelical church that I was part of felt very freeing for them. And so for them, they were really excited. For me as a kid growing up, um, I just kind of saw it as this, you dress up on Sundays, look your Sunday best, you know, you, it felt quite formal. And I remember just walking in with my family to join other families in the seats and seeing them all in their Sunday best. I kind of felt like Ralphie from A Christmas Story <laughs> where 
just kind of looking around like, what the heck is going on? Just wondering why we're doing what we're doing and just feeling quite confused. And I remember this one time really asking my parents, hey, why, why do we dress up? And what's that about? And I didn't get a great answer. It was just more along the lines of like, well, if you, you got to dress up, but make sure you do it for Jesus because like, you got to please Jesus. And, and so I just kind of felt like, okay, I guess we all really want to please Jesus here. And that's kind of how I walked out. Um, but I think this was kind of a metaphor for how I felt inside for that confusion piece. It, it, to me, it appeared that everyone outwardly had this love for Jesus, this desire for Jesus, but I, I think I saw it as much harder to see played out in our actual relationships growing up. Oh, I totally get that. And I love like the Jesus dress code that Jesus likes certain outfits and hates the others. But like, I'm curious um, if there were more unwritten rules in your upbringing, were there other things that kind of uh, were below the surface, but everybody understood them to be kind of important as far as your understanding of like what church Mm. is and what it isn't? Yeah, totally. Um, I think for me, I really gathered what church was based on that Sunday morning type of experience. So for me, it was a specific building with service, a service composed of like a sermon from a really spiffy guy, a worship set up through the band, and then kids going to a bunch of classes. And I I was kind of that curious kid who would ask a lot of questions, but there were a lot of just general pat answers given. And so my curiosity was often unsatisfied Um, and I think for me that's just where this performance unwritten rule kind of mentality if so to speak started to set in so for me memorizing verses was a a way to get Christian dollars for the Christian kids bookstore at the church and so I, I learned how to memorize verses and do all the right things so to speak um, because then you're rewarded so we would talk a ton about Bible stories and what pleases Jesus. And I think if I really think about it, Jesus himself wasn't part of that. Like I was told Jesus loved it when I obeyed him. But there wasn't this sense of like actual desire to know Jesus. So church to me was became climbing this ladder of head knowledge. And it resembled to me like school. Um, there was a lot of talk about relationship but not actually fostering that deep sense of knowing him and then I think for me if I look at this transition into middle school and high school the same type of mentality carried over there except now we introduced sex drugs and rock and roll (laughs) Um, what was ingrained was this deep sense of morality marked by your outward way of expressing your faith Um, we had to kind of maintain this sexual ethic resist the the drug culture and and drinking culture and also plan to vote republican when we became of age those were all markers i think of a strong quote unquote strong christian um growing up at least in my community so yeah the the way that was maintained for me as like an unwritten rule was shame was used in a lot of harmful ways it be kind of became a tool to reinforce these these rules. So I would watch these friends get shamed pretty publicly, actually, for making choices that went outside of the system or the lines. And this led to me and led for me to a belief that Jesus then wouldn't accept us. So I was quite scared as a kid. 
Oh yeah, that um, that doesn't sound like the most positive experience by any means. And it's interesting how some of the things that are part of your construction early on as a kid, you see them almost weaving their way in kind of more sophisticated ways as you get older. Um, and th I'm sure that there's, and we're going to talk more about this, how that can be destructive. Were there, were there valuable foundations in the midst of that for parents that are wanting to do something and they're kind of operating with what they think is best? Was there, what, what could you take from that experience that you think is positive? Mm, totally. I think I want to be careful here to not define all of it as this negative overarching experience, because if I really think about it, I'm thankful I had a family who introduced me to who God is. And I also really, I think what stuck out was this sense of it's important to gather as people together regularly, not just here and there. It's like there's an importance there. So I take that and, and I'm really grateful. So we know that you grew up in the U.S. And so in Canada, we sometimes hear about church strategies that come from the U.S., and you hear a whole bunch of different kinds of things and wonder how well they would work in our culture. Um, but I'm curious from your particular experience, if you think yours was a common one or was your church particularly unique? Mm, that's a good question. I think, I think there's a lot of themes from my church experience that speak to a lot of the people I know um, who maybe went to other churches that experienced similar themes in their experience. Um, I think the focus on external appearance and putting a lot of our time and resources and into crafting this kind of perfect Sunday vibe that would attract more people was pretty common for a lot of people. I think the focus on the end times and the, the rapture kind of kind of fear um, type of thing was embedded in there. And then also the whole concept of politics being tied in with Christianity was really big for a lot of people. I think I think being a Republican was um, just a big part of Christianity. And so I think what Elle said, if you, if just remembering when she said there was this, we're kind of in this age of vulnerability and, and authenticity. And I think people can really smell when something is off and manufactured and contrived in that way. Uh, many, many people I know have really struggled and have, have left the church and become the quote duns as she put it and in her interview last week. Um, and I, I just think a lot of people are truly desiring to know and pursue it, but the church experience they had also um, went against that. Sess, I get the sense that you started to feel like your church experience was restrictive or lacking in some way. So when did you know that something was incomplete? Was this a moment in time or was it a gradual process of questioning and thinking? Mm, I think for me, maybe some of both um i know i know i had a pretty major moment when i was 17. i had kind of all these tensions i was thinking about where things didn't make sense started to culminate into this desire to color outside the lines a little bit um i i had had a, fr a really close friend who grew up with me in the in the church and she was pretty publicly shamed for coloring outside the lines and, and that really shook me. And hearing, hearing God is love, but then not seeing it played out um, caused me to want to take a step back. Um, and, that, and I did. I took a, like a six-month leave of absence <laughs> from church and decided that I would kind of explore if God's not real, like what else does life look like? And, 
but I, after, after that, I had a pretty real encounter with Jesus and, and felt drawn to return. And, but, and then in my 20s, so I started going to this other church, and I was there for eight years, and it was quite a different experience than my upbringing. Um, but over time, I began to see this, these themes emerge again, just kind of manifesting a little bit differently. So it kind of sounds like there was inconsistencies that you were starting to pick up on. Um, can you talk a bit more about these? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a few that come to mind. Um, we would talk a lot about church, being a family, embracing all cultures and nations, living out this concept of like Acts 2 in the, in the Bible. And yet t- there was this deeply embedded hierarchy within that in the way the church functioned. Um, it, what that looked like was leadership were kind of these one-way transmitters of all things Jesus and knowledge and understanding. And it felt like as churchgoers, we were like, lucky to score this knowledge and that might sound a little dramatic but that's I think the common experience in that sense Um, another thing was discipleship which is a great thing but it looked really different Um, it was encouraged but it was run like this really tight ship it would be like in my experience it was like a one hour time slot you'd meet at a Starbucks or something with your discipler and and the whole time you felt like you owed your discipler something back like somehow they changed your life for you and you you owed them. And so it kind of reinforced this really inauthentic way of doing life together. Um, and it also reinforced those unwritten rules of you need to keep on this path of, of climbing this ladder to eventually become your own discipler where you can transmit knowledge to someone else. So in that way, it felt a bit like you're a chess piece um, in this scheme of things. Um, another thing is the way money and tithing was handled. It was discussed in a really pretty manipulative way, I think. This became, for me, just a, a point of confusion because like, the church I was part of was in the inner city of San Diego, and we were actually meeting at a high school where it was the most diverse, at the time, the most diverse high school in the whole nation. So it was a really cool opportunity. We had refugee students from all over, and... Yet money, when we would tithe, it was talked about like it went to the community, but but it actually went towards these really big houses that the leadership had. And when we would put on programs and things like that, you would see them charge money to attend those things to, in order to pay for the programs. So, so it just all didn't line up for me in terms of where how are we actually caring for the widows and orphans in this sense? And, and you just didn't really see that. Um, and yet the, the verse... Acts 2.42, where it's like everyone's sharing communally, um, that, it, that was used. And so it just was very incongruent in that way for me. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think if, if I think of another big point for me that was hard, um, church life remained really separate from friend life. And that, that was something that, to their credit, like I didn't know any different, but I, and I don't think they knew any different. But it, it felt like a business transaction. Like, but yet we use this relational language. So it's just very confusing. Um, yeah, the whole idea of connection and intimacy. It, it was preached in a way where it's like, you don't get connection unless you obey. And if you don't obey, you're going to miss out on this connection. And, and I think if we looked at it honestly, it was not actually connection because you had to really work for it, which is not connection, right? And in Jesus, we see it the opposite. 
Um, so I think we really had it backwards there. And all of this kind of culminated for me into this major point of deconstruction, which led me to lead, leave again the church altogether. I, I hyper-focused at that point on what we're not doing as a church and even the, the little things that we do on a Sunday morning down to the pulpit, to the microphones and the lights, I started to deconstruct all of it because I was just really frustrated and angry and seeing it as not a biblical way that we were preaching. Um, but yet after, gosh, after some time, I really couldn't deny that there was this deep cynicism and contempt and ultimately like this deep pride that deeply began to s take root in my own life. And this, this led me away from Jesus, not towards him, which is what I was ultimately seeking. And so the, the words that Elle said last time just really ring through my ears where she's talking about how it's okay to deconstruct. Like these things that we've been doing a lot of times don't make sense and they're not the best way. But when you start to deconstruct Jesus and who he is and throw the whole baby out with the bathwater, that's when you can really dig yourself into this hole. And I think I was in a hole for a long time. Mm. So where would you say, or what are some areas that church was majoring on the minors in that experience? Mm. Yeah, I think the main thing that sticks out is just the way the church has bought into this Western performance-driven type of culture, focusing more on the showy aspect of a Sunday morning service instead of like the widows and the orphans. And the message that true Christianity is really about attracting numbers and selling a product rather than embodying this way of Jesus and loving the down and outcast and fostering community with each other. I think this fear of losing numbers and trying to be relevant to fit in with culture um, really is, is the major point of the church majoring on the minors. In the first podcast, we introduced this topic with Elle, who you've been referencing, and she had this line that grabbed, I think, both Jess and I, where we heard her say that church isn't cool. It was never meant to be. Um, what's cool about loving your neighbor? What's cool about loving your enemy or caring for the downcast, like you were saying? But then that's kind of the magic of church. Um, so I'm curious, uh, what does church look like at its best uh, from your vantage point where you're at now? Hmm. I think I think the focus has to be on community, the the people that are specifically around and and rather than trying to look like other churches or the way successful we, or what we think is success looks like, I think I kind of picture it like a tree um where our roots are deeply embedded in the places where the com community community of God is needed. Um, so knowing our people, knowing the specific needs of the, the folks that we're in relationship with, it looks to me also like decentralized leadership that takes away pressure from one person having to carry the weight of the entire thing. Um, it's more of a communal effort to bring the kingdom of God into the community. And I think practically it means get, you know, gathering regularly together in some capacity partaking in communion and encouraging the spiritual disciplines and seeking God together through challenge and conversation. Um, but it's messy. Like life together is messy. And I think it's important to embrace that as we pursue church and this whole idea of reimagining it. 
So I love when we can um, tell actual stories of ways that maybe you've seen um, the church in action and where you felt proud. Like, can you think of a time where uh, maybe for all the times you felt a little bit uncomfortable with how the church was operating, has there been an experience of church where you felt proud to be part of it? Yeah, I, gosh, I remember my first few Sundays here in mission coming to New Heights and I remember being really struck by the first thing that happened was I was hugged and then right after church invited over for soup and I felt right away like I was an in person and not an out person and it actually looked to me like nobody in the room was an out person and this like stuck with me um yeah the this place over time has broken down a lot of walls for me I I remember hearing people from church invite me to be part of doing life together and eating just something simple like eating meals together and um it actually took me a very long time to believe that they genuinely wanted friendship with me. Like I remember having this moment of like, okay, well, what do I got to do in response to what you're asking? Like you're inviting me over, but then in, I'd have this inner dialogue of how can I make up for this? And, and these people just like embraced friendship and constantly reiterated like, no, we actually want to be your friend. And it actually took me like a year and a half to start believing that because this part of my church upbringing was so embedded with performance and how can I do and perform to climb and and at New Heights there's been none of that for me and so um, yeah I think it's it's actually just been a significant place of healing also yeah I love that um, there's just this genuine focus on inviting others in and and not seeing us as an in-group and there as an out-group um but it's like this genuine sense of we just we want to love people and know people and and invite them into what we're already doing well in the spirit of reassembling today says what is something that every church person in 2020 needs to hear this is where i i might nerd out for a second you guys (laughs) um as a you know, as someone who's really studying this concept of family and and um, help looking at counseling, I think a lot of what I'm learning really has been ringing through my ears. There's something called family systems theory, and there's this really awesome woman I like named Virginia Satir, and she was quite ahead of her time back when she, in the 70s and 80s, but she, she looked at this concept of um, relationships and defining relationships and contrasting how in a lot of dysfunctional or harmful types of relationships, there can be this sense of hierarchy and this sense of um, like a, like, so there's like two roles within that. There's a sense of hierarchy where somebody takes on the vulnerable down position and the other takes on this dominant kind of leadership type role. And it, over time, it just creates this cycle of communication. And what ultimately ends up happening is it promotes this sense of emptiness, anger, and fear, and helplessness. And I think that's what we've been operating in for a long time as the body of Christ, where w- the the leadership have taken the up position and just regular church folk have come in as like this consumer type of, oh, we need to be here and, and kind of go along with whatever is said um, without actually functioning as um, this equal type of body 
and that has promoted emptiness and fear and helplessness and i think that's the state we're seeing today is um just the body of christ being scared and i i think of this one of my favorite guys um, who kind of talks about this stuff a lot his name's mark sayers and he has a couple cool books but he talks about how we're in like post-christian culture which has really wanted to seek jesus um or seek the kingdom of Jesus, but without the king. And I think, I think what we're seeing is a lot of reaction to that. And so there's this like grasping attempt to hold on to our old ways and to kind of survive this tumultuous time. Um, and that COVID is now kind of adding this extra level of tension there. But I think what's actually happening is it's not caused more pressure but maybe it's exposing this fear for actually what it is. And, and we've, we've maybe been in a state of stagnation for much longer than God's wanted us to be in. And so I get excited. I don't know. I think of um, all the, the renewal talk and just kind of reimagining the way we can move forward. And so to answer your question, Jess, I think to, to how I would um, explain it or what I think every church person might need to hear is we have like this awesome opportunity to and call to embody this way of Jesus and to articulate to the people around us that there is an alternative to this kind of utopia that secular western individualism has been trying to pull us toward or maybe on the other side this um, nationalistic kind of more conservative hold on to our roots kind of utopia that's been speaking on the other side and just maybe looking at both and seeing that those both clash with the kingdom of God, that there's this alternative way. And I think COVID with the pressure, um, it kind of, to me, it reminds me of an exciting cycle that's happened throughout church history where anytime there's been pressure, like the people of God, um, like good things start happening. And I think God's really calling us away from that stagnation. And, it, and how that's looking is like, cultural idols are being kind of torn down and that's a good thing and we're starting to allow the spirit of God to humble us and speak into our lives in a way that we haven't been able to listen to before so yeah feet on the ground I think what this means for each person following Christ it, I think it just means slowing down and actually making time for the people in our life and eating together making food together I love food so I just love the image of eating a lot of food together but actually living in community instead of talking about it and allowing the spirit to change the way, I guess, we've imagined what church looks like and start setting roots in our actual communities down in authenticity. Yeah, wow. Thanks, Seth. That is a real encouragement, and I think that that gives me a lot of hope for moving forward. There's a lot of opportunity here, so thanks for speaking to that today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of our community. You're great. Thanks for having me. It's been a treat. Cecily Carrillo. <laughs> Carrillo. <laughs> Carrillo. We want to wrap up today with some touch points that give some access to who my co-host Jessica Stefik is and why the work of reconstruction has become so important to her. This is a snippet of her story. The week I wasn't a Christian. Day one. It felt like a dirty secret. 
something I wanted everyone and no one to know. But I made my decision. After months of crying, arguing, debating, reading, studying, discussing, though a short period in reality, it felt like the apex of my 20 years. I decided I wasn't a Christian. We had just come out of the Advent season, but I felt nothing. The birth of a savior, God in human flesh, silent night, it didn't do it for me anymore. For the suffering of those around me, my own pain, and the distance between what I thought was good news and what the gospel presented was too vast. I felt numb. I sat my mom down and told her she cried. Day two, I felt liberated. No longer bound to orthodoxy, liturgy, or tradition, I felt like I could be me and fully me, not towing the baggage of those who had gone before. I could think what I wanted and do what I wanted, no need for accountability, no need to ask permission. I could make my own rules. Day three, my choice sank in. I started to reevaluate. What was I doing? Where was I going? My whole life, my plans, my trajectory for the future, all wrapped up in this church thing, this Christianity that I no longer wanted to associate with. Was there anything else? Was there more? Was there something else to hope for? Day four. I ran into an old friend who used to be a Christian, but wasn't anymore. I was looking to find some consolation, some hope. I wanted to know, was there something else out there? I was disappointed. This friend was lonely, bitter, angry. The future began to look bleak. Day five, I realized I should probably tell my fiance my inner happenings of spirituality, my faith identity, my my heart. It felt like it might drastically affect our future, too. We were sitting in the lobby of our college dorm. I told him. He didn't cry like I thought he would. I did. He looked shaken, sure, but he told me he loved me. He told me that he loved Jesus, too. He started sharing with me his faith story, his own reckoning with the divine. Through no invitation of mine, I don't know why he did it, and though he knew I had heard it many times before, he told me, plain and simple, what Jesus meant to him, what Jesus changed for him. And I pushed back, what about that inconsistency? What about this problem with the church? What about, what about, what about? He didn't try to make light of my experience He didn't even try to change my mind. He just told me how Jesus changed his life, and my own memories flooded back. I remembered what Jesus once meant to me, what I had maybe lost in this denouncing of my faith, the peace I once felt, the joy that once persevered, the community I had, hope. I wept. Would I ever have that again? Day six, I met with a friend. I was nervous. The more people I told, the less sure I felt. The more my new reality sank in, 
the less liberated I began to feel. I explained how I'd come to my decision, what put the last nail in the coffin of my dead faith. I explained that I felt as though real life just couldn't be explained by the Bible, that Jesus just wasn't good news in light of all the real life hell that happened. I explained that the model for faith I'd once owned, the image of Jesus I contrived, the person of God as I had once known, just didn't hold up. It didn't even work. It felt like the ground had been swept up from under me and I was falling. But their response surprised me. They said, Jess, I'm not worried about you. Why? I asked, for I myself was worried about me. They responded, Jess, what if instead of the ground falling from beneath you, the ceilings just opened up? What if it's not that you have nothing to go off anymore because everything you once believed is wrong, but a whole world of opportunity is being opened to you? What if instead of being confined to the room you put God in, God is much more? What if God is bigger? God is more mysterious. God is more complex and more unable to be contained inside a room than you ever even thought. What if, instead of God being less, God is more? I went home. I thought about it. I wept again. Day 7. I paced my dorm room. My roommate was out. I was distraught. I had come to the conclusion that because God was not black and white, the Bible was not black and white, and that God was not really what I thought God would be, that God was less, that God didn't matter. I had never even thought to think that maybe God was more, that God was more mysterious. I had never thought to think that God was more loving, inclusive, compassionate, and nuanced than I had thought previously. Maybe different wasn't bad? Maybe different was better. What if it was my expectations that let me down? The room I put God in, what if that was what was being deconstructed, not God's self? So I sat down. I prayed. Well, maybe it was more of a cry, talk out loud, yell into space, more than prayer, but I thought, Maybe I didn't need to retreat from the overbearing religion I had built up in my mind. Maybe I needed to reconstruct in light of new experiences, new relationships, new understandings. Maybe I didn't need to resist faith entirely, but maybe I needed to reinvite the divine to show me why faith mattered. Maybe I didn't need to remove myself from the community that actually loved me. Maybe I needed to recommit myself to being there for others with questions. Maybe I didn't need to reject everything that I once held so dear. Maybe I just needed to reimagine that God was more than I ever thought. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to Aaron Lowe, Cecily Carrillo, and Jessica Stefik for bringing their personal reflections and life stories to the table. 
Thank you to our silent sponsor and our very supportive church community. And of course, young Obi Elford for putting together the music that backs our voices. Join us again in two weeks when the re-podcast looks at reconciliation. We're anticipating lots of learning opportunities with a very interesting guest expert on the theme of reconciliation in the church in Canada. We hope you'll join us. This has been episode two of the re-podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before.